joke tonight. <laughs> Someone recently gave me this. I recently discovered that there is a physiological reason for depression. It's when the optic nerve gets crossed with the rectum nerve and it gives one a shitty outlook. <laughs> okay, this is what happens when you don't know what to talk about. <laughs> I guess it's already on. Okay, <laughs> I didn't realize we were on. Anyway, <laughs> hello world. <laughs> Tonight, while I was sitting, I was the only topic that floated through my mind as a possibility for tonight was the topic of here and now. That, in fact, every Dharma talk is really about how to, to orient ourselves to the only place that life, that we can find aliveness, life, reality is is here and that any other anything about there and then is we're talking about the unreal anything about the future it's an unreal projection uh, only that happens in the here and now and the past is an unreal projection only arising as thoughts in the in the present moment and it's clear that most of us when we are happiest in our life, we are very unselfconsciously and uh, uninterruptedly resting in the present moment, either immersed in doing what we're doing and so immersed that we're, we may not be busy knowing that we're present, but we're just in the flow of life, or we actually know that we're present and we're feasting on the fact that that we're awake and there's a there's a kind of spark of of happiness and life and there's a a feeling of connection and all that that comes with being awake and knowing that you're awake yet we i think all humans tend to spend very little time awake and present as that statistic that i shared from the more recent study where 200 and f where the, at Harvard there was a this study where people gave 250,000 responses to being beeped uh, requesting that they let the the researcher know what was happening in their mind 46.9% of the time people were daydreaming and the surprising thing about the findings the most surprising thing to the researchers was that rather than daydreaming, which is often used in order to make boring or difficult tasks or unpleasant things more bearable, it had exactly the opposite effect. It made difficult tasks, it made being in the present actually more difficult after a person had reawakened from having been daydreaming. It actually made people feel worse. And we somehow know that, but some, we can't somehow get ourselves 
condition ourselves, orient ourselves to finding a, um, a passionate, committed relationship to the present moment. If I ask you, how many of you want to live in an unbroken way in the present moment? How many, anybody raise their hand? Not too many. (laughs) I think most everyone would like to, but I think we're a little scared to. And we're a little unfamiliar with having an unbroken sense of presence. We're much more familiar with the with the, the unconscious titration moving in and out of flashes of being present, but then very quickly leaving. And I think most of us are really happy that we can leave. And in fact, some of us do find a lot of joy in our imagination, and our imagination can be a great source of joy. But what's interesting, and what we often don't notice is what it feels like, even if we have found joy in a, in a wandering of our mind, what it actually feels like, how, what is the state of our heart and mind when we return to presentness. Tonight, I was because I was thinking about presentness, thinking about wanting to be present, especially if I was going to talk about it, even though I didn't know I was going to talk about it at that time, but I thought maybe that's what, what I'll talk about. And so I decided to see how long I could remain present. And the, when I was present, there was just a... I, I felt when there was any kind of continuity of presence, it was as though the sense of aliveness, the sense of immediacy started to just brighten everything. Everything got, it began to just stream with a kind of current of life. And then I drifted off, drifted off into the imagined past or future. And I'll just stop here and say, I drift off plenty. Every Dharma teacher drifts off plenty. I think the only difference between a Dharma teacher, and I can't speak for anybody else, but the only difference between me and maybe people who haven't practiced so much is it doesn't bother me to drift off. There's no extra judgment about having drift off because I drifted off because I know that's just the what minds do. They drift off. And I know whatever that conditioning is in spite of my best intention to remain in an unbroken way in the present moment, the conditioning is such, the causes and conditions, the momentum of karma, you could say, uh, has come together, conspired to uh, trigger a wandering off. And it happens completely unbidden, without intention. And so there's no, it's so obvious that it just happens by itself, that, that the notion of blaming anyone, first you have to find someone to blame, but, and there's no one there to blame. It's just a happening. Wandering mind wanders. There's no one who wanders. Even though, conventionally speaking, we say, I wandered. That's a little digression. But I noticed that even after a wandering that had... I, one of my wanderings was thinking about a friend of mine. And when I thought about that friend of mine, in my thoughts, I was, there was a chuckle. That I started to chuckle. 
But when I came back, when I woke up to the reality that I had been off in this little journey, I certainly had the residue of the chuckle, but I noticed that it was harder to be embodied. It was harder to be present. I felt slightly jangled, slightly disoriented. Ever feel that? I felt as though I had, I had uh, disconnected from, from, a, uh, from a source of, of uh, nurturing, of nourishment, of peace, of harmony, of wholeness, of, of sufficiency, of enoughness, all of that. And for that time, even though I was off on a, what was, it's not always this way, but this, it was a pleasant little journey. But something that we often don't notice is we notice how pleasant our thoughts are. We notice how seductive they are. We notice how even the unpleasant ones. But we often don't notice. And the invitation of our practice is to notice what the residue is of having gone off of losing that, that connection with the immediate present. And I thought about it as I went along. You can tell I did a lot of thinking this evening. I, I thought about it in much more macrocosmic ways. How people of privilege... I consider us people of privilege, being able to meet like this, being able to have enough time on our hands, enough resources, enough intelligence, pretty good conditions in our life to have found the the Dharma teachings that help support our life. And people who who are pretty open-minded. So there's a lot of grace in in this uh, room, I would say. We're... Generally, urban dwellers tend to be more, slightly more open-minded. We're, we're, much more, we're much more open and inclusive. Last week we talked about inclusion and exclusion. And that's a beautiful thing. But there's also something that goes along with privilege and comfort, relative comfort, is that we tend to be able to, in perhaps more creative ways than any time in the history of the world, we have ways of distracting ourselves. We have ways of entertaining ourselves. We have places that we can go. We have lots of things to do. We have things that we can acquire. We have such an array of experiences that we can have. And on one hand, just like the wandering mind... It brings us lots of moments of pleasure. But we often don't realize, don't contemplate what it's like after that pleasure passes. There's certainly some residue of pleasure because we often have the pleasure of pleasant memories. But often there are other kinds of residue. There is, There are other kinds of reverberations from our what becomes a dependence on different ways of entertaining ourselves and the ease with which we can leave the immediate present and 
the, the state of simplicity, how easily we can move away from that into the world of complications, proliferations, the word papancho. Our mind can just go off and, as the teachings put it, effusions of thought and fantasy that obscure the simplicity or the bare, as it's called in the teachings, the bare data of cognition. So technical. So our mind does this, our actions do it, and then we, but sometimes we don't recognize the residue. And the re, what's the residue? The residue is it's harder to be simply present. The residue is the wake of each one of our very fortunate pleasures, the wake of it is a feeling of loss. And also in its wake come, comes a new a demand, an inner demand to find something more interesting. Consequently, our commitment, especially for those who, who have so many options, our commitment to living in an unbroken way in the present moment is, is not so great. We're very easily thrown off. And you may even find, even in the course of the half hour that I may speak, that if, if, it, if you have to actually feel a little bit of unpleasantness, you're go, you're, you won't be able to get out of here fast enough. If you start to feel heavy or tired, because we so easily can move away from these things. If you feel bored, if your mind moves into comparison or analysis or interpretation, because you don't need to stay here. You could go home and do something more pleasant, or you could go to sleep for that matter. People of, I think most human beings, but especially people of uh, relative privilege, tend to be less committed and less committed to practice. I don't really include all of you. I think you're all committed. You wouldn't be here on Tuesday night. But by and large, uh, we tend to be a little less committed, very much more easily distracted for all our good fortune and privilege. And I had a, an exper- a very interesting experience this last weekend where I was leading a retreat in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, community that I've been serving now for almost 20 years now. And I love going there and love the people that I've met over the years. And you've heard me talk about other communities in the same way. But I noticed on this retreat, there were about 75 people doing the retreat. By the first afternoon, by about four in the afternoon, it ended at five in the afternoon. It was a non-residential retreat. By five in the afternoon, or four in the afternoon, the 74, 75 was down to 60. By five o'clock, it was down to 55. So, we, so in that last hour of the day, 20 people, there were 20 people less than the beginning of the day. Now, it's a whole different conversation about how personally I took that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to go there. Even though I did feel a little bit, um, I did pause and wonder, you know, is it, something, is it something I did or said? 
But there may have been a variety of reasons. But I teach really all over North America, and I go to communities. Vancouver is one community that has non-residential retreats almost every month, or at least every other month. And they have teachers, Spirit Rock teachers, IMS teachers, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. It's basically exclusively Insight Meditation Society teachers and Spirit Rock teachers who they have, as part of their charter, to who go and lead retreats at the Asian Center at the University of British Columbia. And so they have them every month. And I started to think, not just think, but I started to have a sense that that they have a lot of privilege to have so many opportunities for practice, so many teachers, so many teachings, that they may, and this was, could have been my mind just having mental illness, I don't know, but, but I actually started to think that one of the fruits of privilege is people just aren't as, as, um, as on fire aren't as committed. Because I, I go to communities that don't have as many opportunities and the you can actually feel the palpable sense of sincerity and commitment and people really stick it out, even if it's uncomfortable. We're not used to sticking it out with ourselves. We're not used to sticking it out with events, etc. If, if it's... Um, if it's hard. And that's all very innocent because we've all learned, we've all been given so many options to check out. And many times checking out was the only option we had, especially when we were young. We may have been traumatized. We may have been criticized. We may have been mirrored. In, a, in really unhealthy ways, all kinds of psychological reasons, cultural reasons, racial reasons, religious reasons, all kinds of reasons. But it has culminated in a very challenging relationship with the present moment, with being present, with being simply here and now. Consequently, the only place that we can find any nourishment in life is often overshot, overlooked, and even if we don't overlook it, we don't, have a, we don't have an easy time staying here. The second day of the retreat in Vancouver, not knowing what people's reasons were for leaving and not wanting to make any conclusion about whether they were committed or not committed or whether they're jaded or not jaded, whether they're... Whether, and they, they're not committed because they're all these ideas that I had without knowing that, I still encouraged people, as one might if they were doing couples therapy, to encourage the couple to close the exit doors. I encouraged them to close the exit doors, to commit themselves to staying through the whole day and just dealing with whatever pops up. And we had the most, at least in my mind, I never checked in with anybody, but it was the most delicious day of immediacy, of fullness, of an effusion of just every... It was infused with, with love and light that day. Of course, it was the second day, full day of practice, and people are cooking after a while. 
But I saw that, at least in my mind, that we sometimes need to add reminders to stay where we are. Not to immediately follow some kind of impulse to check out. I mean, those impulses to become distracted, to get lost in thought, that is very much helped by continuity of practice, but our minds wander. That's how it is. But in the general sense, we can be more committed to our practice. We can be more committed to the present moment. I've been talking to people who have closed the exit doors in a matter of speaking, have closed the exit doors during this 100-day retreat. How many? Well, I don't, I don't need to know how many here. I don't want anybody to feel ashamed of not joining the 100-day retreat. But every single person I have spoken to who has closed the exit doors for 100 days, committed to practicing with more commitment for those days, is, uh, is lit up about it. Is feeling, they're feeling some kind of, of benefit, some greater sense of whatever they are, whatever they're trying to expand, the loving kindness, the mindfulness. I can't even think of any specifics right now. But there's something about commitment, something about giving ourselves wholeheartedly to what we're doing. And what practice asks us in the long run is to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the life of the present moment. To step out of the, the worlds of want and the world of, as the Mokan tribe in, in Burma, they, they're the two words they don't have in their vocabulary. They don't have the word when and they don't have the word want. And, they, and I think because of that, they are very in tune with life. They're very immersed in the unfolding present. And sometimes we need to remove those words. hundred days at a time, one day at a time, one hour at a time. Remove the word want. Remove the word when. Step out of time. Step out of what I want to happen. As Rumi says, humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. He finally says, it's spring and finally I have no will. Stop fighting. Just let ourselves be right here. Stop flapping our arms so much as, as Pablo Neruda puts it. He says, now we, can, now we will count to 12. And we will keep, all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak any language, in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive, now I'll count to twelve, you keep quiet, and I will go. So Pablo Neruda, you may not hear it in the poem, but he reflects one of the famous 
suttas from the uh, from the udana, which is a basket of of sutras. There's a sutta called the the um, yeah, it's called the udana. It's number one fifteen point oh one. Sutta is teaching for those of you who are not familiar. This is the words of the Buddha. For one who clings, when you think of the word want, when one who clings, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond, or a state in between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. This is the joy of nirvana. so easily missed because we swing our arms so much so we're so much in motion so much in craving so much in a state of becoming state of obsession with what's next here's from Nagarjuna considered the founder of, of Mahayana Buddhism this is a poem entitled Someone Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds, the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this... That won't happen. Anguish will end. You know, he paints the picture of a a lifetime, but this is just a metaphor for the lifetimes that we enter into in every little drama, every little thing, every experience that we seek after, and how easily the deepest source of relief is missed. That That natural silence, that natural stillness, the sense of immediacy, the sense of reality, the aliveness of being here so different from past and future that are just mental. And we, we miss the real source of happiness. As Sri Nisargadatta puts it, as long as we believe 
that we need things or experiences to, be, to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction. I'm not, this does not say you shouldn't have pleasure, but we have to have a wise relationship. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, openness, the emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So the beauty to me of coming together as a, as a sangha is that it, there, there's strength in, in numbers. There's, you know, it's hard for me to stay present alone. Not that we can't stay present alone, but it, it's so much more fun to stay present with others. We are so supported by each other's presence. It it's, gives us that kind of field of immediacy, that field of love that comes from being together, and being connected. And, and why do we feel more connected? Because we're here, not because anything special happens here. Please. That pleasure is... is a very wholesome pleasure. If, it, if, if the pleasure of being here together leads you to embrace, to find more of your home in the present moment, then to have your mind dwell less in your imagination, then how could that be unwholesome? But thanks for the question. That's really good. So I think, please, Carlos. Hunger? Hunger for family?
Carlos is saying that language is all these wonderful things and old. No, imagination's a wonderful thing. Stories are wonderful things. Everything that our mind does can be quite wonderful. And we don't, and the point of our practice is not to abandon all of those amazing functions of our consciousness and all the beautiful expressions and display. But at some point in the span of our life, we have to be able to see, to know something that is not limited to that that's not bound up in our imagination that is free of imagination that's free of dependency on anything and then if we truly find what I suggest is to be found very much here and now if we truly find a sense of home in ourselves here in the present moment then we can go about enjoying all the all the things that the wonderful things about language our mind our pleasures but without the mistaken faith that they will bring us ultimate happiness. Because we already know. We know that we are already, in our innermost nature, as happy as we will ever be. And it is such good news to know that you don't have to lift out of this moment or even think about anything to find it. To go anywhere, become anyone, it's your true home. It's your... It is bedrock. We are. Hopefully. Hopefully we're getting down to business here. Very simple. Please in the back. Oh, I know. Yes. Yes, all those. Uh, no doubt, but we can't we can't use any of it for ourselves. Once we awaken to the to the truth of things, we can't use that as an excuse. Well, I think from from the beginning of time, the uphill battle is that we have minds that want things to be different than the way they are. So there's nothing new under the sun in that regard. We've just found new, fancier ways to distract ourselves. But I think we have the same problem that people did at the time of the Buddha, and and people could resolve their mind then, and I think they still can now. There are people in your midst in this very room who have found a, a balance in working with all of this conditioning and all this uphill this upstream that all of us have to to swim. The good news is, in order to swim upstream, it's mostly just staying where you are. Yeah, he, she's saying there's an app on the iPhone for for meditation. And yeah, we've been there. Anyway, I, I don't. Uh, we do have to call it an evening. So I would like to end. We'll get out of the app world. and But thank you for mentioning that in the back. I appreciate your comment about iPhones and three-year-olds and iPads. But I want to bring us back into the 
to the uh, elements of nature with the a Wendell Berry poem to remind us where our true, what our true medicine is in his poem called The Wild Geese. It's still a bit season, it's still the appropriate season. Horseback on Sunday morning, harvest over. We taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over the fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear, what we need is here. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear, what we need is here. So let's just sit quietly for one moment. And commit ourselves to the gift of silence and stillness, immediacy. One moment at a time, settling back in the midst of the marketplace, wherever we are, know that we have this silence and immediacy as our True home. And as usual, we reflect on our time together here and consider that if there's been any fruit, any blessing, any goodness, any merit, any benefits from our being together, that we offer them up give them freely to all beings that we are touching and being touched by in every moment, all beings everywhere, those near and dear and those afar. And we share the blessings with a deep wish that, that all beings can have happiness and peace right where they are, that all beings can feel safe and protected from inner harm and outer harm, right where they are. That all beings can feel that vitality and health, aliveness that comes from immediacy, health and strength, but yet also be able to meet weakness and illness with graciousness and presence. And a deep wish that all beings regardless of their circumstances, inner and outer, that they find ease of well-being, find a sense of freedom, able to meet the joys and the sorrows with serenity, and a deep wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated 
to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy. So thank you for listening to the stray thoughts. Thanks for your comments, your questions. And as usual, just a reminder that this is, uh, we have beginning, we have as at the end of this month, our next rent check due for our $600 for the month, $150 a week for the room rental. So any Donna, generosity on behalf of the room rental is much appreciated, and checks can be made out to the to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, and that makes it and it will be tax deductible if you feel to do that. And if you uh, also any you can offer cash in the basket for room rental, Donna as well, and also each week, whether I'm here or not, and whoever takes a seat offers the teachings freely in a tradition that's gone back 2,500 years, considered priceless, so everybody can hear them. But the way they've been supported is by people offering their generosity freely uh, in the form of support. And so the basket's always there, and thank you in advance. And, and thanks mostly for your presence here and your practice. And one last Announcement: I will not be here next week, but you have the great good fortune, and I want everybody to come, because you know how nice it is to sit together as well. You will be treated to Anushka uh, Fernandopoli, who is a, a brilliant teacher, a great human being, an activist, uh, um, uh, just very, uh, a great storyteller, uh, very poetic. She probably of, of all the Dharma teachers I know, she uses metaphor better than anyone I know. And I think she's really fun to sit with. You'll learn a lot. And she will be taking this seat next week. And we're really lucky to have her. She lives in the neighborhood. And I wish uh, and I hope to have her more often here because she's right here. So please come next week, see Anushka. And I will see you in two weeks. So have good practice. Don't miss a moment. I have a question for you.